spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. And welcome to the 127th Annual Subliminal Deception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody, and I'm joined by my pal, Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. I don't know if you're aware, but Mercury is in retrograde right now, and I don't know if you've noticed, people are a little psychotic right now. Have you Have you noticed that in the world? I did not know that uh, Mercury was in retrograde, but I have noticed that people are getting a little crazy, especially out on the roads. So, yeah, yeah that I have noticed. Dude, I'm telling you, I've just really noticed people seem very agitated. Anxiety is really high this week. Um, it, it, people seem easily confused a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that part, but yeah, it's something's going on out there. Yeah, we have not had our, you know, astrology talk in quite a while. Not since that Patreon episode where we were talking about astrology for 25 minutes. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, I don't really I don't really pay much attention to astrology. I do know that with my grandma, you know, who which one I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, the the uh, the cycles of the moon definitely affected her Um her craziness, especially the becoming the phone warrior that she was. Yeah, so. yep. I remember those legendary stories. I usually don't pay too much attention to astrology either, but uh, when I hear Mercury's in retrograde, I don't know. People just go crazy. People are angry, very angry, and then it kind of just goes back to normal, which is very strange. But uh, but Phil, we gotta. We, there's two things we got to get off the table here. First off, happy birthday to Phil. His birthday was, okay, Friday. You, your birthday was on Tuesday, I believe, correct? Yes, Tuesday, the 28th. Yep, yep. so you are officially an old man, and I will yep. be following not far behind you in a few months. I'm uh, I'm uh, patiently waiting for the mail to come with my AARP card uh, so I can get my discounts. I'm pretty happy <laughs> about that, so, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to say this. 2021, I think, has kind of been shitty for everybody, but it hasn't been shitty for the entire football team of the Iowa Hawkeyes. They are killing it. What's your anxiety level with them tearing your heart out? Two weeks ago, it was at a zero. Um, Right now, it's about a thousand percent, I think. They are, ooh, our offense is not looking good. Our defense is rock solid, but... God, we just don't have anything on offense. But, I mean, we are 4-0. It's hard to bitch about that. But, yeah. I was also going to mention, too, Minnesota Vikings, that quarterback they got over there, uh, Crazy Cousins, he actually had quite a good game. Maybe the first one he's ever had as a Viking. Yeah, they this, uh, this is the talk of the town because Kirk, you know, usually sucks it up pretty bad the first, like, month to five weeks of the season and for some reason this year he's just like 
I don't know. He's just rearing the go, and he's playing really good. The other thing is, and I this is like kind of a conspiracy theory in itself, but people think because of all the ridicule he got for being an anti-vaxxer might have made him angry or something and gave him some sort of drive. So maybe his anti-vax mentality is giving him some sort of secret willpower. Nice. So the unearned paychecks that he's been getting aren't quite enough now. Now he's getting angry and now he wants to win. Well, that's yeah. a nice little change Look, for him. Hey, you know football players, they get motivation through weird things with Michael Jordan. He gets his ambition through getting mad about everything or getting upset about literally well, everything. Gambling and anyone beating him at anything. Yeah. It's just or challenging him at anything. <laughs> He's just that petty, and that's how he got his drive and motivation. I guess that's what old Kirky's doing. He's using anti-vax to instill himself with some sort of confidence. I don't know. So I guess good on him for that. One one little thing we were going to talk about, and we know that a a lot of you guys don't care about football, but uh, both Cody and I like love watching football, NFL, college, everything. And we were talking before the before we started recording, the freshman quarterbacks in the NFL have been getting absolutely just obliterated. They have not been doing good, but especially Chicago's quarterback, Justin Fields. Yeah, that is fucking atrocious how badly he was beaten. Like just the offensive line couldn't couldn't stand up for him at all. Forty nine yards of total offense the whole game. That's. It's yeah. n- uh, look, I'm just going to say, surprisingly, somehow that's not the lowest of all time, but <laughs> it's uh, it's not good. And yeah, they they might as well have just put him out there and said, all right, just stand here and let these guys hit you really fucking hard. <laughs> exactly. I was telling I was telling you he would have had a better QBR if he would have just stayed home that day. If he would have just called in sick is. It was absolutely horrible, but it's kind of like how the movie Any Given Sunday, the coach is talking to his quarterback before he goes in. He says, don't worry. If you do play bad, I can't take you out. There's no one else to throw in. So (laughs) the ginger wonder, Andy Dalton, he already got broken by that offensive line. So basically just go out there, kid. Let's see what happens. But I will say Peyton Manning had a terrible first season and went on to a Hall of Fame career. So maybe, maybe the same will happen to him. The problem is, I mean, no human being can take those kind of shots and, you know, have a long career as a quarterback. That's it's impossible. Yeah. Like, yeah. Tom Brady, he's been he's been seriously hit maybe a handful of times. And look at him. He still like looks like he's 25 years old, you know, plays kind of like he's 45 when he runs. But like he's still doing great out there. Well, I mean, the truth behind that is because his wife is a crystal witch and she probably has been doing some stuff to him to keep his uh keep his age he is a fan of donald trump i guess so maybe the donald's been sharing his adrenochrome with him i I don't just about to say adrenochrome yeah yeah maybe that's what it is i don't know i don't know maybe john madden needs a little adrenochrome um something's gotta give but anyway let's have you take over here lead us into the uh the episode here. Well, speaking of great men, uh, I have a 
an episode that's pretty uh, heavy history and kind of light on the conspiracy. I, I saw a really good documentary a couple weeks ago, really just kind of wanted to talk about this and found a conspiracy-ish sort of topic. So let me get started. Let's do it. Throughout history, the deeds and triumphs of great leaders have been passed down through the generations, through spoken word, art, song, and of course, the written word, with their trials and tribulations becoming taller and more grandiose with each telling. However, some histories are stranger than fiction and couldn't have been made up by even the most prolific of storytellers. Alexander's invasion of Tyr, Caesar's bridging the Rhine, Washington crossing the Delaware, and of course, Elway escaping the hapless Baltimore Colts. Though, there is another instance in history when a man whose fate was supposedly sealed only to escape his situation and take one last shot at conquering the world. Okay, I'm just going to say this about John Elway, all right? Uh, maybe this is unpopular. Uh, I think he's a little bitch. Just going to say that. That was a little... Uh, uh, spoiled brat move that he pulled. Now I don't know. Is that are the is Alexander Caesar Washington? Could they have been considered brats for their age? Definitely, I would think maybe Alexander. Um, I don't know how Washington really acted as a as a child. I do know that he did some pretty big things in the French and Indian Wars. Um, Caesar was kidnapped by some pirates. Claimed that. He was joking with the pirates, claimed that he was going to kill those pirates one day, and then he actually did come back and kill the pirates. So, I mean, All right. Well, yeah. look, let's just be honest about Elway. Uh, I think he got a little bit of retribution for his behavior because he went to, like, how many Super Bowls before he actually won one? So he got blown up pretty bad in every Super Bowl he was in except for the last two before he retired. Yeah, he just barely eked out a couple of Super Bowl victories before retiring. But yeah, it was, I mean, more, it was more Terrell Davis anyway. Let's be real. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of it's one of those deals where the the Colts left for Indianapolis and, you know, they eventually got Peyton Manning. So mm -hmm. it all worked out for everybody. Mm -hmm. Then they got then they sucked for luck. So <laughs> true that. Yeah. In 1769. The Battle of Ponte Navu, fought between the French and native Corsicans, occurred on the small Mediterranean island of Corsica and ended 14 years of Corsican independence, allowing the French crown to annex the island. That very same year, on August 15th, a baby boy would be born in the town of Ajaccio. His family was not particularly wealthy, though they were part of a lower noble family of the island named Buenaparte, though the young Napoleone would later change his name to sound less Italian and more French in his adult years, mostly to aid in his military career, though the infant would grow up to become one of the most infamous leaders in European history and is the subject of today's episode as we discuss Napoleon Bonaparte and his escape from exile on Elba Island. Okay, uh, I've heard this name a few times. I didn't know that he was born on the same island that the Chrysler... Ed, oh, hold on, maybe it's the Chevy Corsica? Um, oh. Do you remember <laughs> that, that awesome ride? Yes, uh, my older brother, I believe, had a Corsica, and you pretty much had to stop it by sticking your foot out the door 
and putting your foot on the ground just yeah. to just to get it to stop. It's so. one of those like late 80s, early 90s piece of shit, shit car. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what that thing is. Okay, so <laughs> um, all right. So he is Italian-ish. Is that what you're saying here? Well, so Corsica's uh, an island in between France and Italy. So it kind of, it's one of those little regions, one of those little islands uh, that kind of goes back and forth between like different families owning it, different countries owning it. Uh, it, it kind of becomes solidified under French control after gotcha. this. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. All right. Napoleon Bonaparte was born to his father, a lawyer, Carlo de Buonaparte, and mother, Letizia Romolina Buonaparte. Now, after the annexation of Corsica by the French, Carlo would actually become part of the transitional government in Corsica and was awarded a spot in the French military for one of his sons, which Napoleon would actually later take in 1779. Uh, He actually had to spend a year in France uh, learning how to speak French in a primary school. This was a pretty big requirement to attend the military academy at Brienne. Okay. All right. So what was the... What was the primary language on this island then? Italian. Italian, okay. All right, that's what I figured, but I, I wasn't entirely sure there. All right, so uh, what the hell would have a lawyer been like on this island back in fucking how long ago? Well, I imagine he probably wore one of those powdered wigs because yeah. I always imagine lawyers, you know, back then wearing the powder wigs. I think in England, lawyers still wear powdered wigs, but I'm you not sure. You bet your ass they Maybe do. Maybe get an email or something on that, but... They do. I, I, I have seen some videos. Yeah, some great uh, documentaries on television of them wearing, <laughs> wearing the powdered wigs. While at the military academy in Brienne, Napoleon would actually kind of feel really isolated by the other students and would be bullied for being a foreigner in their land. Though it would be at Brienne where he would become acquainted with French culture, uh, mathematics kind of politics in general, geography, history. He'd also gain a place in French society. This was because after he graduated in 1784, Napoleon would be accepted to the highly prestigious military academy in Paris and would go on to join the French military as a second lieutenant in the artillery regiment of La Fayre at Valencia. Okay, so I'm kind of, you know what, I'm just going to draw a comparison here. I'm kind of getting Jeff Bezos vibes off of him. Now, how what I mean by this is he is an Italian man who transitions to a French person, right? Um, yes. Now, Jeff Bezos is an unknown android who is trying to act like a human. So I've I kind of see the comparison there. Very true. Yeah. Also... The big thing that uh, popped into my head was like Hitler trying, mm. like going from being, you know, he went from a neighboring country of Germany to really trying to get into like German society and kind of transitioned through the military, just like Napoleon did. Right. So, okay. Yeah. That's a good point as well. Yeah. I mean, but also Jeff Bezos, you know, he, he can try to act human, but it's going to be a lot harder for him to act human than it is for Napoleon to act French. Right, so. right. 
definitely. It's it's not it's working out like, for him very it's well. It's kind of like Sasha Baron Cohen trying to act like a uh, Southern hillbilly. Yes, like he he's very. If once you hear him talk, it's very clear he's <laughs> from England. Yeah. But <laughs> it's uh, just. It's just like with Jeff Bezos. Once you see the crown of his head, you're just like, no, no, you're not a human. No. That, that's not a human's head. That's not even real skin. Not in, not unless you killed your poor mother and split her in half like a hot dog. <laughs> that You're not a human. I'm sorry. Tragedy would strike the family, though, as Carlo would pass shortly after Napoleon's graduation in 1785 leaving his wife and small children in abject poverty. Uh, they would actually live really on whatever Napoleon could send them from his meager military salary. After the beginning of the French Revolution in 1789, Napoleon would become a member of the Jacobite cause. This was a pro-democracy political organization who fought to end the reign of the French monarchy and later protect the gains of the revolution from the aristocracy. Uh, he became acquainted with Augustin Robespierre, the brother of very famous Jacobin leader Maximilien Robespierre, and was quickly promoted to Brigadier General of the Army during the very infamous Reign of Terror. Huh, interesting. I'm going to be real with you. Uh, I don't think I know much about the Reign of Terror. I don't know if you are going to go into that. I'm I'm going to go into it a tiny bit. Here's okay. the thing about basically I'm covering all of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars in this tiny little podcast, but I'm just blowing right through it. So I'm just going to go okay. through like little bits of it. If I if I if I did a whole podcast, it would be like a 10 part, like a five part <laughs> series. It'd be huge. Uh, here's the other yeah. thing. When I hear Jacobite, I instantly assumed it was some sort of like Christian cult. Oh, okay. Well, close. When you think of Reign of Terror, think of the guillotine. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. A lot of uh, people's heads coming off. Yeah. For like French blood was just flowing through the streets during this time. So. Gotcha. Okay. Maximilien Robespierre, acting as the leader of the Committee of Public Safety, was largely held responsible by the National Convention for the over 17,000 executions by guillotine, and he and his brother Augustin would eventually themselves be beheaded by guillotine. Uh, this happened in July of 1794. Now, for his affiliation with the brothers, Napoleon would be put under house arrest. However, he would actually escape fate for the first time when he was actually called back into service to fight a royalist uprising, uh, even being promoted to major general. Ooh, okay. So do you think when Napoleon was on house arrest uh, and he, he had that ankle bracelet, do you think he bedazzled it like the TikTok kids do? Oh, I imagine he does. Yeah, okay. I can just imagine him walking around the house carrying his little <laughs> stool so that he can reach things. You know? I, I actually saw one today and it was a girl with a bracelet or a, like ankle bracelet and she put the apple sticker on it. That was uh had to spice it up a little bit, make it a little bit more classy. Oh yeah, definitely. It's I mean, I I don't really watch TikTok a lot, so but I can imagine I've seen like YouTube videos, I guess. What are these kids like in trouble for something, or is this kind of like uh they making fake ones? What's going on with that? Uh like, I think what it is, it's, let me get this straight. It, it's not like all of them, but there is people with ankle bracelets who think it's like cool 
when they like decorate them, but they don't okay. actually realize how kind of trashy it is. Yeah, it sounds very trashy. <laughs> yeah. I keep, well, when we were in high school, they would just send us to, you know, a, if a kid did something bad, they'd send them to juvie. But I guess it's cheaper to keep them home now. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I knew one girl with an ankle bra- ankle bracelet, but uh, that was about it. Not too many other people. Oh, I remember her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was she was a she was a fun human being. Yeah. So besides fighting a revolution and near constant insurgencies at home, the French military also had to fight a coalition of their enemies who not only smelled blood in the water, but also wanted to stave off any ideas of an anti-monarchical revolution on their own lands. And Napoleon would be sent out to fight these foreign militaries, first against France's arch-rival, Austria, in the Italian peninsula, which then-General Bonaparte would actually help to defeat and take out of the war for a short amount of time. Next, after consulting the French government not to invade England directly, he would instead opt for them to send an army to Egypt, even being allowed to lead this army. Uh, this was in an effort to end British shipments coming in from India to help kind of strangle their economy. Gotcha. Okay. I, I guess, uh, what would it be? Logist- not logistically. <laughs> I don't know. Strategically, that's a great uh, way to attack Britain, right? Do you know by chance if all the Austrian military was requiring men to wear extremely tight shorts in the battle like they do now? I would assume so. Okay. Yeah. Right. I assume it's very Eastern European, <laughs> even back then. So yes. Uh lots of uh lots of house music playing in the background, you know, quite a few drugs <laughs> everywhere. So just like you imagine it. Yeah, okay. That's what I figured. Just like Euro Trip. Okay. <laughs> now while in Egypt Napoleon's army would find immediate success against the Egyptian rulers, though his naval escort would be defeated at the Battle of the Nile in 1798. This would leave his army all bottled up in the Near East. He had actually gone on to fight the Ottoman Empire, though he was defeated after a failed siege. Because of this, Napoleon would kind of want to find an out And he caught wind of the turbulent situation back in France and decided to abandon his army in what is now Syria. Uh, He headed back for Paris uh, for the opportunity, really, that he had been waiting his whole life for. Okay, interesting. Like, up to this point, it literally seems like this guy, his entire life is nothing but wars. Yes. I mean, he, it's... It's one of those deals where he kind of falls into becoming the leader of things. I mean, he's obviously, you know, he's a really good military leader, military man and everything. But it's because there's so much turbulence in France at this time that you can have a, a just a normal, like, not even, a, he's not even a Frenchman. He's a Corsican. This man can go from being like a junior officer to a general very, very quickly, just from knowing the right people and being on the right side, you know, of the revolution. He's always kind of on the right side. Gotcha. Okay. He is definitely like John Elway then. Yes. Yep. He knows. He always finds a good landing spot. Definitely. (laughs) Now, in November of 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte would take part in the coup of 18 Brumaire. This would lead to the demise of the directory, who were in charge of France at the time. 
They were the executive branch of the French government, you could say, and became the lead member of the new executive branch. This was the three-member consulate. Uh, he actually took the position of the first consul. Eventually, he would become the sole consul in 1802. Then in 1804, he would crown himself emperor. Ah, okay. I guess a uh, little dictatorish, huh? Yeah. So he was originally part of this like three-member council that was in charge. And then he just kind of took power for himself. And then what happened at the time, actually, so Napoleon, at 35 years old, uh, was handed the crown by the Pope, and he put it on his own head, which is pretty unprecedented. Normally, you're crowned by someone else, normally a man of God, obviously, you know, the Pope. He would normally put it on top of the head, but he's kind of famous for putting it on his own head, just like uh, Cersei in Game of Thrones. Gotcha. Okay. Uh must be a charismatic fella. I don't know about like personally, but the people really loved him, like the French people, because he was kind of this stabilizing force. Gotcha. Okay. With the ascension of Napoleon Bonaparte to the position of first consul, the French Revolution ended. And after June 1800, the defeat of Austria and their total expulsion from the Italian peninsula, the British would also make peace with the French signing the Treaty of Amiens, ending the War of the Second Coalition in 1802. This would end hostilities between England and France, though only for a short time. Mm. They always seem to not be big fans of each other. Yes, yep. until World War I, they were bitter enemies, even worse enemies than France and Austria. Mm. I didn't even, uh, yeah, I guess I did know France and Austria didn't really like each other. Yeah, there are some countries in Europe that are just absolute bitter enemies, just never get along. Poland and Russia is one of the big ones. Uh, well, Poland and everybody. No one really likes Poland. <laughs> but the post-revolution France that Napoleon had inherited was in shambles. This was due to 10 years of near constant internal and external conflict. And he would take immediate action to restructure and stabilize the government and economy bolstering the nation's bureaucracy, their banking system, especially, though, their military. Uh, he would also write the Napoleonic Code and spread it out to lands all over the world, which were under France's influence. Okay, so what is this Napoleonic Code, Phil? It basically kind of, uh, it, it did away with like how France was when it was a monarchy. So it kind of boiled everything down to more... Like the family is more important. It it really got rid of uh, the power of the the monarchy and the aristocracy. Uh, it, it did really bad things actually for women's rights. Uh, it it led more for men's rights. Gotcha. Okay. So Napoleon probably would have made a great governor of like Texas. Yes. <laughs> yes, he would have definitely uh, focus on the family type situation. Yeah, and take yeah. away women's rights. Yes. Yeah. They're, uh, you know, that whole six week thing they're dealing yeah. with now, but yeah. <laughs> the, the, the patriarchy in live action, basically in 1803, an expansion minded Napoleonic France would see renewed conflict with the prominent European powers and war would once again commence this first conflict to start under Napoleon's reign was called the war of the third coalition. Uh, this saw the countries of Prussia, England, 
Russia, Austria, and Sweden join forces and wage war against the newly anointed French ruler. Beginning with the country of Great Britain, uh, this alliance really gained steam, though, two years later, after the British victory against the Franco-Spanish fleet at the Battle of Trafalgar on October 21st, 1805. And France at the time was very closely aligned with Spain. Gotcha. Okay, I was going to say, oh, that's a hell of a team up right there, Phil. Um, It kind of reminded me, I actually wish you did still live here because I think it's on October or November 2nd or something. There is a wrestling match thing <laughs> at a local high school here. I'm not fucking around with this either. All-star lineup, Kurt Angle, Tatanka, um, <laughs> some Jeez. guy I've never even heard of, and I can't remember the other guy. Some Holy other shit, the senior up. league is coming to town. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they are wrestling at a high school here. Nice. That's basically yeah, the same lineup in human version of those countries. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's one of those deals where they're mostly just there to sign autographs. But <laughs> Yeah, so like I said before, uh, they were really worried about the revolution in France leaking out to their own countries and getting rid of their monarchies. So during the French Revolution, all the way through the Napoleonic Wars, all of these main countries were fighting against the French when they had enough strength. You got to think too, it took a lot out of them. But it is amazing to think that France was such a superpower at the time, militarily, that it could wage war against all of these countries for nearly 20 years. I mean, yeah, I. it would seem like those countries could whoop their ass, but uh, you, you're saying they could hold their own. Yeah, well, I mean, you got to think, too, all of them were good at different things. So Prussia has the best military. England has the best navy. Russia is basically just millions and millions of people that it can call up as conscripts. Sweden has a decent navy. Austria is kind of a, a decent military at times. So, I mean, really, you're getting the most powerful countries on Earth to come and aid basically England in fighting the French. And England also was the piggy bank for the war for all of these countries. They were putting a lot of gold into the war against uh, France and then eventually Napoleon. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So during the early part of the War of the Third Coalition, Napoleon had thought that he may be able to bypass the British Navy, which, as I just mentioned, was the strongest in all of the world at the time. This was with a deceptive tactic that would allow France to invade the British land and take away key European enemies before she could rally other European allies to her side. Though the Battle of Trafalgar stopped the 150,000 French invasion dead cold, forcing Napoleon to focus on a different approach. And that was defeating the allies of the United Kingdom all the while attempting to kill the trade and shipping to and from the island of Great Britain. Gotcha. And then this is where, which you've talked about prior, earlier in the episode, him cutting off the trading routes and whatever. Yes, this was his original plan uh, back when he was just a general to kind of kill off Great Britain. He thought that if he could kill Great Britain's trade, put them in debt, then they would no longer have the ability to wage war with their navy which was the big fear of Great Britain. 
Gotcha. Okay. Now, the decade-long history of the Napoleonic War is far too vast and will require, like I mentioned before, a many-part series just to give it proper justice. So I'm just going to give you the gist of the conflicts and its eventual outcome. Okay. I, I think people uh, can come to appreciate a condensed version sometimes. Yes, this would be a five-hour podcast if I just started <laughs> talking about the whole thing. So for the first nine years of the conflict... France focused on weakening and taking over Britain's allies with the aim of crippling the UK without having to face the wrath of the almighty British naval juggernaut. By the time of the Austrian concession and suing for peace with Napoleon, the French Empire was vast in its scope and either directly or indirectly controlled much of Western, Northern, and Central Europe or had allies in the rest of those countries to dominate the sea lanes and embargo the British goods. All of those countries had joined what was called Napoleon's continental system. And uh, basically below, I have a map of 1812 for you to look at. And that was either Napoleon directly, indirectly, or his continental system. Okay, so how are we looking at this thing here? Okay, so remember how I said uh, the main enemies against France were Prussia, Russia, Austria, Sweden. Yeah. So now he either controls or indirectly controls most of those countries and the rest of them are in his continental system. So he's pretty much subdued all of England's allies by 1812. The dark green is uh, France at the time, right? Yes. Yep. The dark green is France. The light green is basically Napoleon's uh, family who he installed as rulers of those countries and the the weird color of like forest green is all of the countries who were in the continental system who were embargoing your or england gotcha okay man france was a lot bigger back then than it is now yeah he took over a lot of so he you can see he's got the entire netherlands he's got the entire like belgium he has most of Northern Italy and a lot of Germany. Yeah. So I that's see. why France looks so bloated is because he took over and directly controls a lot of it. Oh, that island of Corsica is, you see how there's two larger islands in between France and Italy? Yeah. The one that's highlighted in green is Corsica. Okay. So it's decent size. Oh yeah. It's a big island for as far as like Mediterranean islands go. Gotcha. Okay. Now, to describe the map of Europe in 1812, Napoleon directly controlled an oversized version of France, along with parts of Italy, the Balkans, and Corsica, with France being surrounded by client states. This would include Spain, modern Germany, parts of Italy, and Poland, and finally, all of the Nordic countries where our people come from, Austria and Russia residing in the continental system, who were allied with France, kind of rounded out the French empire at this time and how powerful it was. I was going to say this uh, kind of like how big France is in this picture is kind of how Germany looked like, like right after world war one, if I remember right, like Germany was owned a lot of shit back then. Yes. I mean, how Hitler is viewed now is how Napoleon was viewed a hundred years after his death, mm. kind of the terror of Europe. I mean, obviously you know, Hitler was putting people into death camps and, you know, exterminating just 
anyone who he didn't deem, you know, a Aryan race, but Napoleon was a terror of Europe at the time. Yeah, I could see why. Definitely. Yeah. Now, the continental system, though effective in forcing Britain to focus more on trade with the Americas, North and South, rather than continental Europe, never completely shut off the flow of goods and supplies to and from Great Britain, with smugglers finding a vast amount of opportunity in the emerging black markets of the war-weary Europe continent. With the failures of the continental system, many of the member states who were under the control of France began to waver in their support against Britain, causing a number of European powers to split from the French empire. This would be a great opportunity for Britain as they would race to Great Britain's side. Now, one of the countries that Napoleon was suspicious of was the Russian empire. He would actually decide to send an all-out invasion force to regain control of their ally. Huh. I don't I don't think invading Russia's like ever worked out for anybody, has it? No, and this is one of the big instances where the the Russian winter really takes effect. Yeah, especially during this time, huh? That's kinda <laughs> It's not like you have your little fucking thermo whatever thing to keep you your, warm. Your Gore-Tex gear. And yeah, all I was, of your yeah. I was, I was trying to remember what that little uh like camping gear shit is it Ken more? No. Well, there's there's Yeti. That's the the famous expensive stuff now. What's the one that has like the little propane tanks and shit? Coleman. Coleman. That's it. Oh, the little yeah, the little the little little heaters and the yeah, li- yeah, yeah. little stoves. Yeah. Yep. No, you don't have that stuff. And I mean, really, the French were not prepared for the kind of fight that they were gonna meet. So. Yeah, I mean, they could cut open a baguette and try to stay in it when they're cold, but like that's. <laughs> It's still, it's not going to retain heat very well. True. That only works when the baguette is very fresh and still warm on the inside. (laughs) So, oh, they actually did invade during the summer. So, I mean, that was kind of a good idea on their part. They might have wanted to invade a little earlier, though. Uh, So on the 24th of June, 1812, the Grand Army of Europe, led personally by Napoleon Bonaparte himself, departed friendly lands via a Neiman River crossing into the territory of the Russian Empire with a massive force of over 500,000 coalition soldiers. Though, ultimately, it would be superior strategy and, of course, home field advantage for the Russians that would finally win the day for the defenders, as the Russian army chose not to engage the French, opting instead to tactically retreat deeper and deeper into their own massive lands and, of course, burning everything in their path along the way. Now, this is until finally the Russians' greatest ally, not named Vodka, helped defeat the coalition forces for good. And that was, of course, the cold. Gotcha. Well, I mean, obviously they're not going to waste Vodka on fighting. You know, they're not going to risk letting the invaders taste the vodka. So they're going to protect that at all costs. Um, That's true. (laughs) They need it for themselves. It's what causes the rampage. (laughs) protects them from the cold uh yeah let's uh i'm gonna be curious about this burning everything behind them yeah so it's called the scorched earth policy basically you retreat and you burn down all of the fields and all of the grain stores so that the invaders have nothing a big part of what alexander did when he invaded uh all of the near east and pakistan and india all of that the indus river valley 
he basically just sent out little detachments and had them go shopping for his army. They would go steal all the grain, go find fresh sources of water, everything like that. The thing that the Russians did, they didn't allow anything to be left behind for the French, uh, eventually causing just havoc for the French, especially considering France wasn't used to the shitty roads that Russia had so that they really weren't able to get their convoys of carriages and uh, food carts into the country. Gotcha. Okay. So it's very effective against them. Definitely. So with the Russian strategy of scorched earth mixed with the French's supply lines and the inability of the army to traverse the poorly kept Russian roads to resupply, the army was starved out and frozen by the time of their defeat in December of that same year, eventually having to limp back to mainland Europe with less than 200,000 of the original 500,000 troops that had originally marched east. Now, this massive defeat would lead to the countries of Austria, Prussia, Russia, the United Kingdom, now with Portugal and Spain and Sweden, joining forces in 1813 in an attempt to finally stamp out Napoleon for good. Jesus, okay, so they're trying to hit him when he's weak. Yeah, they finally see their opportunity. See, the thing is, in 1812, I showed you that map, how they were all with Napoleon. They really didn't want to be with Napoleon. The problem is, they had all been defeated, and they had to sign peace treaties just to not be exterminated, just to hold maybe whatever they had left. Basically, they saw this as their opportunity to kick him while he's down and take him out for good. Okay, all right. After winning key battles all over Europe, the coalition forces pushed Napoleon's forces out of Germany and completely out of the Iberian Peninsula of Portugal and Spain, invading France at the end of 1813 and marching into Paris on March 31st, 1814. Damn, so they they really got him. Oh, definitely. Yeah, they hit him on all fronts. I mean, it was... What you would can kind of like how Germany was being hit on all fronts. This is how France was getting hit uh, in 1813, 1814. Gotcha. So he basically this one large stupid move of his is kind of turning into just a complete disintegration of everything he had. Yes. I mean, it was a massive, a massive folly, but this one slip up has completely led from his his demise. I mean, if you think about it, he was at his absolute heights just two years before the invasion of 1814 of Paris. I showed you that map. That was 1812, two years ago. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty quick. Definitely. If he wouldn't have done that, he probably could have held on for years before Great Britain, you know, gathered up enough force just to take him out. I mean, eventually he would have had to leave the continent because he was an expansion-minded person. He would eventually try to leave the continent, and that's when England would have taken him out with its navy. But really, he could have just you know, held on to his gains in Europe for years and years. Yeah, I can see the similarities to Hitler on this, this end as well. Like he, yeah. he I, don't, I don't know how true it is, but you always hear like, uh, if Hitler didn't attack Russia... He would have been a lot harder to defeat. Oh, yeah. I mean, eventually, Germany and Russia would have come to blows against each other. Uh, Stalin actually didn't believe that Hitler was attacking him, even while the invasion was going on. Stalin couldn't believe that Hitler would be stupid enough 
to come and attack him. So that's one of those weird little things. But yeah, it was always it was always Hitler's in his Hitler's mind to attack the communist Russians. But mm. but yeah, it did lead to him having battles on all fronts. Yeah. And at the time, you got to think France was allied with Russia. Basically, Napoleon just had a thought that Russia might be going to the other side. And that caused everyone else to go to the other side. So kind of like when LeBron went to the Miami Heat. Definitely, just like when LeBron went to the Miami Heat <laughs> and left Cleveland high and dry, yeah. as it should be. What a shithole. Now, after the fall of Paris, Napoleon wanted to retake the city and take his army, the remaining bit of his army, and drive the coalition out of France for good. However, his generals felt a little differently and told the emperor that his time as head of state had come to an end forcing him to abdicate on the 11th of April, 1814, though it was actually a mute point as the French Senate had already deposed him as emperor on April 2nd. Okay, so what what are you trying to say here exactly? Explain it for the more layman's like myself. Okay, so basically Napoleon with his army had to flee, like go away from Paris because the coalition forces, his enemies had invaded Paris. Uh, he and the lower ranking soldiers wanted to go retake Paris and, you know, get all of these English, get all the Austrians out of their country. But the generals wanted to kind of maintain what little military, what little power they might have had, what little power France might have had, and also didn't want their own people to be exterminated basically in that battle. Okay. So they told him that he was done. So he had to abdicate. Gotcha. Okay. Which means he couldn't be, he, he gave up being king. Okay. Okay. I, I, I see what you're saying now. I, I won't lie. I wasn't entirely sure what abdicate meant, but now that makes sense. Yeah. So he abdicated on the 11th of April, but the French Senate had actually already deposed him as emperor on the second, nine days earlier. So he was already like not the emperor any longer when he gave up power. Okay, okay, I see. Yep. Now, the Treaty of Fountainebleau, signed on the 11th of April, 1814, was negotiated by Napoleon's representatives. Uh, This was while he was residing in the palace of Fontainebleau. Uh, On April 13th, before signing the treaty, in the midst of losing, really, his family, his empire, and his people, Napoleon would actually contemplate suicide rather than face the exile, which he faced. I I mean, for a dude who seems to have as big of an ego as this guy, uh, yeah, he probably would rather be dead than, you know, kind of be shrunk down to basically nothing. Oh, yeah. He was at one point the most powerful person on Earth, and now he was being forced to have other people negotiate for him his own exile, his yeah. own imprisonment. Dude, this shit is just just like MC Hammer. Like, Definitely. you know, he was on top of the world. Nobody could bring him down. And then he just, he was forced to go into exile. <laughs> I just actually watched the documentary uh, Britney versus Spears on Netflix. And I, do you have, have you seen that shit? Not yet. Is it good? It was scary how a human being can basically be just owned by another human being so easily. And the courts just approve of it without 
Yeah, it's Ooh. it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I might have basically. to watch it. Yeah. Thankfully, I'm not rich. That's <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So the Treaty of Fountain Blue effectively ended the Napoleonic Wars and sent the former emperor into exile. As per the treaty, Napoleon would be made the new sovereign, though of the small island of Elba. This was off the coast of Western Italy. It was chosen for its warm climate and well-built fortifications, which in theory would protect Napoleon from assassination. Now, while on the island, he would be joined by his mother and his sister. Also, his mistress, Marie Walaska, would often make visits to Napoleon with her illegitimate son, though his wife and son would not join him in exile and would stay in their home country of Austria. Huh, okay. Why did they do that? Because it was only a political marriage and he had nothing left to give, really. It's it's one of those deals where also Austria was at war with Napoleon in France. Gotcha. So she just she just went home, basically. Okay, gotcha. After pre- his defeat, she went home. So she probably just prefers uh, the dudes with tight shorts on. Yeah, I also did read something about how she was also having an affair. So mm. it doesn't seem like it was a very loving marriage. <laughs> but royal marriages back then, I don't think really were, you know. No, absolutely not. Not, you know. It's like, uh, not very wh- it's like whoever the fuck's married to Newt Gingrich you know who's probably not happy with him. Oh, yeah, just like Trump's wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you never see a smile on her face for a reason. <laughs> so while on the island, Napoleon would be given full reign over every aspect of Elba's economy and government, making immediate improvements to the island's infrastructure, economy, fortifications, and military. This was one of the important things that he wanted to do as he was given allowances to maintain, per the agreement of the treaty, uh, a very small military and a very small navy. He actually did bolster this navy and army a little bit, which would help him in the future. Yeah, I, it, that makes sense. It seems like this guy probably can't help himself in that regard. Yeah, I mean, there are kind of little little writings that I read where they were talking about how he was trying to Basically, he was a general who was commanding hundreds of thousands of troops at one time, and now he was trying to fill out a regiment with mules and donkeys and <laughs> kind of like joking about, you know, how far he had fallen. I mean, it was definitely a major step down from where his former position had been. You know, every night somebody's got to come like pat his head and be like, don't worry, Napoleon, one day you'll be a great general again. <laughs> You're a great man, and yeah. you're tall, and thin, <laughs> and attractive. <laughs> and you love spaghetti. <laughs> the spaghetti falling out of your pockets. Don't check them, but they're falling out. It's all right. <laughs> Along with being made Emperor of Elba, Napoleon would be given a 2 million franc stipend every year. Also, the Bonaparte family members would each be given pensions, though none of that money would ever come. Uh, This would force the island's new emperor to begin taxing the citizens of the island, which they very much did not appreciate. This was because his navy and his soldiers were costing him just over 1 million francs per year alone. This was along with the lavish parties and high lifestyles that the Bonaparte family were appreciating while living on the island. 
Now, after his allotment did not arrive, Napoleon would begin to feel that he was holding up his end of the bargain. However, his jailers definitely were not. I mean, so far, it doesn't sound like they are. No, I mean, once they made that agreement and got him on Elba Island, they kind of just forgot about him. Everybody, even the new French government. <laughs> Especially, they didn't want to pay him the two million francs. Yeah, I don't really blame them. Yeah, they were left with the fucking bill. You know, it's just like if uh, an NBA team has like a star player who's a veteran and then he ends up getting traded away. But that team still needs to pay him the money that he's owed. You know, yeah, I suppose that happens more in baseball, but I think that happens fucking everywhere. Any sports. Yeah. Well, in the movie Moneyball, uh, Brad Pitt was saying to that one guy, they like you so much. They're paying they're paying us not to have not to have you. Now, through messages smuggled into the island by his visitors, Napoleon would learn that not only was Louis XVIII, the new king who had replaced him as head of state in France, highly unpopular, his government was on the verge of collapse. Also, that the powers that had sentenced him into exile were now considering moving him away from mainland Europe to the island of St. Helena, where they had originally considered sending him to. Oh, fuck. I thought you were going to say, say they're going to send him to Pittsburgh. Yeah, that would be even worse. Yeah. Definitely. I Ooh. mean, even at this time, Pittsburgh was a, a well-known shithole cesspool. <laughs> because of all the broken promises by the new French administration and a feeling that the French people needed him now more than ever, Napoleon contemplated escaping his captivity return to the mainland and attempt to right the French ship. The British colonel in charge of watching over Napoleon's actions on the island, Colonel Neil Campbell, in November 1814, wrote to his superiors that he was worried that if the promised money did not arrive, Napoleon might board a vessel with his small number of soldiers and invade one of the coastal towns on mainland Italy. Hmm, okay. Well, if they're the most powerful Navy, why don't they just take him out if he tries that? Well, I mean, it's one of those things where it's more of a annoyance. Mm. Um, also, the British, everyone's so war weary right now. They really don't have the money or the, the will just to do anything. No one. I mean, after you fought this 20 year war against France, everyone just kind of wants to cool down and, you know, put line their horses back up, basically. Right, right. I it that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm not sure if they were worried that Napoleon was going to invade and try to take over Italy or if he was just going to try to ransack one of the towns to get some money. But they were worried that he was going to invade one of the coastal towns. Gotcha. Okay. So another reason why Napoleon wanted to return to the French mainland was the news that he had received of a conspiracy to overtake the Bourbon King, Louis XVIII. This was by the Duke of Orleans, Louis-Philippe. Uh, news had reached Napoleon about this in February of 1815. The Bourbon King. Okay. Yeah, of it, uh, the Bourbon family, kind of like the Habsburgs. Okay, I don't they're, know they're that a, is They're either. a powerful family in France. Ah, okay. All right, that may... <laughs> That makes sense. I was like, Jesus, does this guy make whiskey or what? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Basically, if Louis the 18th, I'm, I was reading about it. I was trying to kind of understand it. It would, If this new king would have taken over, he was worried that it would really 
kind of set back everything that the revolution had stood for and kind of like put the aristocracy back in charge. Because uh, he felt like the Duke of Orleans was much more powerful. This Duke of Orleans, uh, Louis Philippe, would actually become king uh, later on after this in the 1830s. Okay. All right. And that makes sense. Uh, so this, we got to watch out for this Louis Philippe. Louis Philippe guy. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's got the name Philip in his name. So yeah, he must be, be a conqueror. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in Napoleon's thinking, nothing in the Treaty of Fontainebleau actually stipulated that he was required to stay on the island, and that as the sovereign of Elva, he was allowed passage to wherever he wanted to go. This was including, of course, France. Now, in February, he would order that one of his ships, a brig by the name of Inconstant, be ready for sea travel, and that the ship be filled with enough provisions for 120 men for a three-month voyage. Also that the inconstant be painted to look like a British ship as to fool the French naval vessels that were patrolling around Elba Island. Okay. First off, awesome name for a ship. Second thing, are these guys that stupid that they just like, oh, that <laughs> must just be a British <laughs> ship. Okay. Like they didn't well, see him painting it or anything. <laughs> well, there's there's not really anyone like watching over him. See, the, the thing that I thought about Elba Island, I thought that there was actually a force on the island keeping him there uh, until I really watched that documentary. They really talk about how there was a hands-off approach. They kind of put him on the island and expected him to just stay there. Okay, uh, uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, weird. Like, I feel like they're whole, handling the whole thing with him very weird. Yeah, much like the Nazis in South America. They expected, you know, all those war criminals just to kind of hang out in South America and die off eventually. Right. Exactly. Like, it'd be like uh, Germany fell and then they just took Hitler and put him on fucking, I don't know where, in Cuba or something. And just was like, all right, you stay here and behave with your boys. Yeah, it'd be even worse because they would have put him on an island just off of Germany where he still probably could muster up support. Yeah. I mean, this the island of Elba is right next to Italy, which was at one time controlled by France. Uh, he probably had, he was also very close to Corsica and very close to France itself. So he was right there. Hmm. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a smart plan, you know, to do with him or whatever. No, it's almost like they're expecting him to be assassinated. Is kind of one of the things because one of the reasons why they put him on Elba Island was because it had fortifications so that he would be safe. But I think that they really thought that he would maybe take care of like things would just kind of take care of themselves. They wouldn't really have to worry about it. Right. Yeah. It's kind of odd, though. Maybe they didn't want to make a martyr out of him because you would think that they would just execute him. Yeah, you, that's probably a good point, because then. Uh, his supporters see him getting executed and then basically the starts a revolution again or some shit and just you have the same story over again. Yeah, everyone rallies, you know, behind uh, their dead, dead leader. Exactly. So Napoleon would put a halt to all sea travel from the island, including fishing boats. So a word of his eventual escape would be slowed. And on February 25th, he announced to his immediate staff that he would be leaving the very next night. On the 26th of November, on the 26th of February, he announced that he was leaving that evening to the 
audience outside of his palace. He actually rode his carriage down to the docks with his generals and soldiers in tow. Uh, He boarded a small vessel that took him to the Inconstance and to his freedom. At 8 o'clock in the evening, a single gun fired. This would signal Napoleon's departure from Elba Island. Hmm. Interesting. And the the gunfire wouldn't get his, like, captor's attention? Well, they weren't really... I mean, so I didn't really mention it. But the guy who was in charge of watching Napoleon was actually off the island at the time, which is kind of why Napoleon was taking this opportunity right now. Gotcha. Okay, so he's like... <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what you want to call it. His fucking parole officer was on <laughs> yeah. vacation or something. I don't know. His, his parole officer was taking a mental health day. Colonel okay. Neil Campbell okay. was, uh, yeah, off on a sex vacation back in, you know, back in Italy. So <laughs> the next day, the small fleet of ships that Napoleon was sailing had actually spotted the Melpolni, one of the two French ships that was tasked with patrolling the Elban waters though the ship never even noticed the Elban Navy. Also, the French brig Zephyr came within eyesight of the Inconstance. Uh, Really, though, this ship and its captain were fooled by the great deception of painting the Inconstant like a British ship uh, and passed by after only having a short conversation with the Inconstance captain. Hmm, Okay, so (laughs) they're not the brightest uh, uh, guards or whatever that you want to call them. Uh, I, right. I imagine I imagine that the captain of the Inconstant didn't speak English very well or have an English accent. So probably one tore of those up. They're probably tore up on wine or something as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he just passed him a bottle of wine and everything was good. Here's a baguette <laughs> and some wine. Wee <laughs> wee. Oui, oui. <laughs> he takes off of there. So on March 1st, Napoleon had the French flag hoisted on the fleet's mass. And the emperor and his 1,500 soldiers disembarked the boats for mainland Europe. By the end of March, Napoleon would enter Paris after meeting zero resistance from the French military, even gaining support along the way. The now former king, Louis XVIII, would have to flee to the town of Ghent. This would allow Napoleon to take back the kingdom of France. Wow. Okay, that... uh... That was pretty easy. Yeah, it's one of those uh, it's one of those crazy instances where everyone it's almost like a boxer who pops back up at nine and three quarters, you know, and he's good. He's good to fight. And then he's he's back in the fight when everyone thought he was down. That's that's crazy. He basically just walked in there and be like, all right, I'm taking over. Yeah, I mean. There's also stories of him meeting like French civilians, French soldiers, and them just kind of like marching with him, supporting him, going by by his side. He showed up there with this very small force and then invaded Paris and just walked in like he owned the place again. So it's basically like, you know, you're it's Friday night. You're like, yeah, I don't want to do anything. And then you get a knock at your door and it's it's your boy and he's got a six pack of Mike's hard lemonade and all of a sudden you're just motivated to party. Yeah, well back in the <laughs> back in my twenties maybe. Nowadays you gotta slam the door in his face. Nowadays you know what fucking time it is? Nowadays it's <laughs> twisted tea. That's the only <laughs> thing that gets you going. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. It's it's white claw. I'm a I'm a classy ah, guy. All okay. Right. You're a seltzer guy though. <laughs> I'm a seltzer guy now, especially during the summer. Now, on March 25th, 
Austria, Britain, Prussia, and Russia would have to once again join forces to defeat Napoleon France, beginning war on June 15th. So the war would end after only a few days. This was because Napoleon was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in Belgium on June 18th. Uh, This was when an overwhelming counterattack by the Prussians routed the French, after which Napoleon would be forced to flee back to Paris in an attempt to rally more support and solidify his political position. Though the subsequent reinvasion of France by coalition forces and the surrounding of Paris just days later would make holding on to power impossible for the empire and impossible for the emperor. And Napoleon would once again be forced to abdicate on the 22nd of June with the newly formed French provisional government formed just after the abdication falling in July after the coalition forces had entered Paris. This is like the worst version of Save the Last Dance I've ever fucking heard, Phil. <laughs> Holy yeah. shit. He's going in for one more, one more, six, I don't know, successful run, and it's just, it's over yeah. w- really quick. It's as, it's as if uh, the second part of that documentary was the Chicago Bulls 1999 season. Right. Yeah. Just terrible absolutely (laughs) shit can it's i mean he only lasted in power for a hundred days it's called the hundred days war basically because it was so short so he literally got power back and immediately decided to invade somewhere yes he immediately so he he took power back he got all of france back and then he immediately invaded belgium with whatever force he had all right interesting okay and not the smartest idea Well, I mean, he had to do something because that coalition was being formed to invade France. So he was trying to get some of his territorial gains back to create a buffer again, I think. That's what I, I mean, that's how kind of I see it. He's almost trying to attack more countries, just like how the Russians made the Warsaw Pact to have like a buffer around them. He was maybe trying to get a buffer around like between himself and Prussia and Austria. Okay, all right. I suppose that makes sense. Yeah. Now, after being captured by the coalition forces on July 15th, Napoleon would be sent first to England and then on to his final exile on the small island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic, finally passing away on May 5th, 1821. After the defeat of Napoleon, the Bourbon King, Louis VIII, was reinstalled as the king of France. Mm, okay, so he just kind of took a, a short little reprieve and then they just kind of put him back in there. So Napoleon didn't really live that much longer after he was uh, exiled or whatever. No, he didn't. Yeah, just uh, what was it, six years after he was kicked out. And he never decided to try to get back up on that uh, horse one last time. No, he didn't. I mean, escape from this island. He went from being the emperor of Elba to being an actual prisoner on the island of St. Helena. It's a very small island. He basically had like a, kind of like a small mansion that he lived in, but this was a very barren island. There was hardly anyone living here. Okay, interesting. Still didn't execute him, though. No, still didn't execute him. Didn't want to martyr him. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so... That's a uh, 
fascinating tale about someone I think, you know, everyone has heard his name, obviously. I didn't I didn't really realize he was comparable to Hitler, you know, as far as uh, domination goes. Yeah, I mean, infamy-wise, um, he, I, it was definitely the 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 amount of fighting that took place uh, between the French Revolution and the end of the Napoleonic Wars is like absolutely amazing. It's it's a really good thing that that kind of fighting didn't happen in like the time of machine guns because you got to think this was still during the time of you know muskets and horses and like short range artillery uh, cannon fire if this would have happened 80 years later uh like in the 1890s it would have been like a global conflict i suppose that's right and there'd be an immense amount of dead bodies oh definitely yeah uh really you first see it during the uh, spanish american war where you start to have like uh the ironclad ships really focused artillery, focused naval artillery, um, kind of like what wars would become. You also have Russia versus Japan, uh, which is kind of the same indications. But having this large of a conflict during the time of like World War I technology, I mean, World War I was obviously terrible too. Right. Yeah. Uh, World War I had, uh, what is it, 40 million, right? Yes. And then, God... World War II was even more. It was in, uh, I think, hundreds of millions of civilians and military dead, with Russians and Chinese taking most of the most of the fatalities. Ooh, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of dead people. That is a crazy fucking story. I I really can't believe they got fooled by, and nobody was paying attention to him just repainting the ship. Like Jesus Christ, what is going on there? Yeah, no one saw a short, rotund man hanging out on the deck. Because you know he was right on the deck. He wouldn't hang out below deck and hide. He had to be just standing right there over everyone. So. Yeah, I, I I, don't know. That is a, it's a crazy story. And honestly, it's got to be, uh, not a lot of people know that. There's no way not too many people outside of history nerds like yourself probably know that story. Yeah, most people think that he just got defeated. Um, like Napoleonic Wars ended at Waterloo and then he was just kind of defeated, you know, either, you know, he got sent to St. Helena or you think that he died, but not a lot of people know that, you know, he was basically giving this, a uh, weird little sovereignty over Elba and then came back after two years. It's very, very fascinating. But, uh, Phil, if any of Napoleon's relatives want to email us, where can they do that? Well, they can hit us up on our email, subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. We've been hearing from a lot of people in the past couple of months. It's been, you know, great. Really awesome to, you know, get a lot of the show ideas, get a lot of everything from people. So really liking that. Uh, better, An even better way to get a hold of us on our Instagram, Subliminal Deception Podcast on IG. Uh, Cody and I also have our own Instagram accounts, minus sdpodphil. Cody, you got one? Yeah, follow my personal Instagram at Cody Zabub. Uh, I haven't been using it nearly as much. You can follow me on TikTok at the same handle uh, and send me some funny videos if you'd like. The last thing we need you guys to do is to log on to iTunes, leave a show a five-star review. It doesn't really matter what you say as long as it's a five-star written. Uh, and if you're a Spotify user, all you got to do is hit that follow button 
It is just like a iTunes review for Spotify. So thank you, everybody who's taking the time to do that. We greatly appreciate that. We hope you all enjoyed a beautiful history lesson about somebody you probably don't know much about. So good job, Phil. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks, guys.